Welcome to another episode of How To with Communications Clinic. I'm Louise Duffy and in this podcast we will discuss how to deliver in front of an audience. At the Communications Clinic we've long believed that comedians are some of the best presenters. They need to understand what makes their audience tick, deliver with energy and do this night after night. So who better to learn from than one of Ireland's most in-demand comedians, entertaining crowds for decades at comedy festivals across the globe. Mr. Neil Delamere. I objected the words decades, but (laughs) (laughs) it does make me sound ancient. Yes, I started off at Newgrange and just managed to keep going from there. (laughs) Well, this is why we're going to you, because you you have been doing this for for quite a while and, and, uh, you know, to so many audience. So delivering in front of an audience is what you do very, very well. So compare for me if you will, how you felt before you stepped out to your first ever stand-up routine and how you felt doing your last most recent stand-up performance. Well, the very first one I did, I did in the Comedy Cellar in Dublin that kind of has started the careers of lots of people like Gardel O'Hanlon and um, and Dylan Moran and all those people and Barry Murphy and Kevin Lee. And I was absolutely terrified. I mean, I was only kind of 21 or 22. And I suppose the good thing in those days is you don't know what you don't know, if you know what I mean. So all I remember, I was talking to a friend of mine who was actually at that gig. There was kind of two schools of thought at that point. You brought all your friends or you didn't bring anybody you knew. And I I kind of didn't bring anybody. One guy kind of stood outside because if you bring everybody, you know, then you don't get a really read on whether the stuff works or not. But I remember learning the set backwards and forwards to the extent if like if that place was hit by a hurricane, I could have continued doing that that material uh, you race through it and um i suppose you just hope that you've ch- chosen the right venue where the host has set it up where you're only going to do five minutes and you're the open spot and they've kind of set it up so the audience not only knows you won't be on that long in case you're terrible but also knows that you're brand new and in the right kind of supportive atmosphere they will allow you to find your feet so i was absolutely terrified the first time i did it i can't remember anything about it um but I suppose what you have to hope for is you are going to die. Nobody, uh, like people who say they don't die, comedians who say they don't die, is that's a complete lie. We all die and we die fairly regularly at the start. You have to hope, I suppose, that your first death comes after maybe four or five gigs where you hopefully think that you can do it. If your first two deaths are your first two gigs, you might never do it again, I suppose, you know? Yeah. Comedy is so wrapped up in um, dark analogies like that. If you do well, you killed it. But if you don't do well, you died. OK, <laughs> so how do you yeah. how yeah. do you recover from dying on stage? You blame other people. <laughs> you blame absolutely okay. everybody else. <laughs> and then that dark night of the soul that you have afterwards, you think, was it you? I, um, A friend of mine who's actually a very successful barrister was a very good comic. And he said to me, I said, why did you give up? And he said, the lows were lower than the highs were high. So I suppose he didn't, he never mastered the get it out your system. Sarah Millican has a rule called the Millican rule, which is you're allowed bitch about the gig until 11 o'clock the next morning. And then, then it's gone. You have to just get rid of it. Um, Sometimes genuinely it's not your fault. Sometimes, particularly in the early days, you're on on a milk crate in the in the corner of a pub and the Champions League is over your head and the lights don't work and the sound isn't good. But sometimes it's your fault and you don't read it right and your stuff just isn't that good. Is it possible to recover mid death, mid gig? Uh yes, it is. The more experienced you get, the more the better you get at reading a crowd. So after a few years you are talking to the audience and you can feel them not go for something 
And you go, okay, so they didn't go for that. That's something that's kind of cruel. Okay, well, then I'll do something physical and silly. All right, they seem to go for that. Or, okay, they didn't go for that, but they go for interaction and they go for stuff made up, up off the spot. So what happens is, I think it's like radio. The first thing you get good at when you're on radio is talking. The next thing you get good at is talking and listening to the other person. And probably the last thing is floating above the whole interview and thinking, is this interesting to the people at home? That's the same thing that happens in comedy. You get good at talking, you get good at timing punchlines, and then you get good at looking at the gig in the round. And particularly if you know your stuff really, really well, you can skip ahead and you can edit and you can do all those things um, and, and you can tailor the gig to the crowd that's in front of you. But that takes practice and preparation. As you say, you got to know it inside out. Yeah. Let's go back to the nerves then that you felt doing that first stand up. And, you know, I think it was it Mark Twain famously said there were two types of public speakers, those who get nervous and those who are liars. So nerves are something that everybody has to deal with, no matter no matter how seasoned you are. How do you manage it now? Um, I rarely get nerves now because I have tended to do the same venues and I know what to expect. But I still do get nervous in front of a different type of audience. So if I do something, say... I did something for Radio 4 recently, well, I suppose in the last couple of years. And I was sitting on a stage and Hugh Dennis, Punt and Dennis, a famous um, a kind of comedy duo were there and it was their show. And I was sitting there and I was wondering why my hands were cold. My hands never get cold. Like, oh, this is, this is nurse. That's what this is. <laughs> it had been a while. Um, and I suppose I just kind of thought, well the reason you're getting nervous is because you're doing something that you want to do and nerves are excitement. It's the same kind of physiological response. So you just kind of take deep breath and realize that what is excitement is also nerves and, and you've put yourself at this position. So it's something that you have created yourself. So just go for it, you know? And you know, the way dogs can smell fear off people. Do you think an audience, <laughs> do you think an audience can smell your fear when you're on stage? Uh, not anymore, but uh, they certainly could at the start. I mean, it was and I, an, an ode to fear at the start of it for you. Yes. It's like Calvin Klein trepidation <laughs> for men. Um, I, I, yeah, I think they probably could. And I think that's one tip I think that would probably cross the boundary between stand up and public speaking generally is do something early on that, settles you so if most stand-ups i know would like to get a joke in early that they know is a very good joke and it's some of their best material and it settles the audience and you can see the audience go i don't know who this person is but i like that joke and we're in safe hands like they always used to say that if you have a material b material and c material you end with your best stuff but you put your second best stuff at the very start so they become comfortable with you then if your stuff is kind of weaker, you put that in the middle and then you end on the strongest stuff, which is the stuff that they will remember afterwards. That was generally the kind of rule that was, used to be knocking around. But um, And even to the extent now when people are trying new stuff in new scenarios and new material nights, they generally start with something that is old. It's like a layered cake. They do a bit of old, old stuff, then new stuff, then old stuff, then new stuff, you know. But it's very important to settle an audience if they don't know who you are. If you're famous and they know you and they like you, it's a different kettle of fish that's very relatable to whether it be a business presentation or you know even a conversation with colleagues you know to to settle the audience quickly and and to end with something so strong so public speaking is, is a very difficult proposition at the best of times but for a comedian you have to engage you have to entertain but you have to make them properly belly laugh but then you have to make it look like you're winging it and it's conversational and it's off the cuff how on earth do you achieve that well for me who does a lot of gigs 
on a tour, generally speaking, I'll talk to the audience. So I will introduce something that is spontaneous because I don't know how it's going to go. So rather rather than speaking from a script that you've learned, which is kind of an American style of comedy, um, the, the Irish and English style is a bit more, first of all, it's a bit more anecdotal in the stories, but also there's room for kind of crowd work. And crowd work keeps it interesting because you don't know where it's going to go. And then that allows you to go back into more tried and tried tested stuff when when i used to go to the montreal comedy festival i did a few years there and i took over from ed Byrne. there used to be a show called um, ed Byrne's just for last and then there was neil delamere's just for last and so we went there maybe five or six times and what was interesting to watch the american comics do was you could watch them night after night and they wouldn't get a syllable wrong the next night so it was it was like a metronome so the what every single thing was measured out and that's fine and it's it's honed but it's not as quite as anarchic as as we kind of tend to like things over here, you know. Mm-hmm. They say watch the wait staff in a you know in a comedy club in America. They're not laughing because they've heard it night after night. Um, but speaking of uh, you know the American comics, Seinfeld, he famously said he wrote one joke per year, which is obviously the the luxury of a multi millionaire. But but what is your what is your process in preparing a show? How long does it take you to get a show ready to take it on the road? Well, I suppose if if you work in something that kind of doesn't have any rules, so a lot of the people listen to this podcast i'd imagine have career ladders and they do this and then move to that level and then the next level and do their cpd and to do their exams and all the rest there's none of that in comedy so i suppose i'm from a background where i like to impose some degree of structure on it so i gear my year usually around the edinburgh fringe festival which means i have to have a new show ready for august uh, every year and then i tour that afterwards so what i do is i start writing probably while i'm touring one show so you start thinking about it in january february while you're touring the previous show and start writing notes down and start you're doing your full show in theaters but you're going into smaller clubs and trying out things at 20 minutes slots here and 10 minutes slots there and five minutes slots there and you're slowly building it up so i, I did a master class in the downtime i did a master class david mamet the playwright's masterclass and one of the things he was talking about was if you write a play you have to write the play and you have to put it in front of people and then you kind of uh, chip away at it and hone it and uh, I think lots of stand-ups were looking at that and thinking that's not a massive uh, revelation that's what we do all the time it is the one kind of art form apart from plays by the sounds of things where the audience writes it really I mean you present your ideas but they don't like that word and you get rid of it and you chip away and you chip away and you chip away so I suppose it takes it takes a few, three or four months to get this stuff together, but then you hit a couple of months of previews and you go out and you make a deal with the audience. You go, listen, this is not 25 quid in Vicar Street. This is a few quid in a smaller room. Let's have an adventure together and you can tell me what works and what doesn't work. But they are your sounding board and they let you chip away and chip away and chip away. The best touring shows you'll ever see, they have been worked out in front of a lot of people over a lot of experimental nights, shall we say. The idea that you can write something and go out and present it and it be fully formed and very pacey and have no gaps and lulls and all the rest isn't really true. But what does happen is after a few years doing stand-up, most people, when they write a joke, know that they get a better chance of what, a better idea of what will work and what won't work. But we're never 100%. So that relationship with the audience is is fundamental, not only in the performance, but in the preparation and the creation of the show. 
Talk to me then about the difference between a Monday night audience and a Saturday night audience. There's lots of different audiences around the world. And there's like London audiences would be considered to be quite, um, you know, make me laugh, you know, arms folded, staring at you. It has to be kind of about how you feel oppressed by clouds or something weird. Whereas I think an Irish audience on a Saturday night might be just make us laugh. Um, in terms of tips, generally speaking, most people when they start, stand up i think and i think this is the same for anybody doing public speaking there's there could be 400 people in a room don't focus on the person that you know isn't enjoying it this is a real thing that you'll always spot the person with their arms folded staring at you willing you to leave the stage and in your early days there could be 399 other people loving it and you tend to concentrate on that that other person and every stand-up will tell you to do this don't do this ignore them you are doing exceptionally well for everybody else. Play the numbers. So look at them. But as you say, you know, you will focus on that one. An yeah. actor is trained not to pay attention to the individuals in the, the theatre. But a comedian has to identify some people, I would imagine, to almost engage with. Try and avoid those ones that are glaring back at you, as you say. But do, do you focus on some people then that you can make eye contact with? Yeah, I mean, uh, particularly if you're doing sort of improvisation, you chat to the front row of the audience. But I have no interest in making pe- people feel uncomfortable. So what you do get reasonably good at after a few years is is picking people who are up for a bit of messing but they know that you're not going to be cruel to them or anything but if you talk to somebody and say so if I said to you you were in the front row and I said what's your name and you said Louise but you looked at the ground and you didn't make eye contact with me and your your arms were folded I mean humans are very good at reading body language you take that as a suggestion to move on the person is uncomfortable with it but if I said to you what's your name and you said Louise Duffy and you looked up at me and smiled and I asked what you did and you said I work for the communications clinic and gave me full answers and stuff well then then we're having the crack you know and I think you can sense if the person is uncomfortable and more importantly the rest of the audience can tell if the person is uncomfortable or not uh, so that's how you do it you just move away from those people and you talk to the people who you know naturally will be up for a bit of interaction and a bit of crack you know mm-hmm. and then with your own non-verbal communication so you know that's reading the audience but for you you know, facial expressions, timing, gestures, they're all accentuating your stories and your routines. Could you imagine doing a stand-up routine from behind a podium? Uh, it's, it's funny, when I do corporate speaking, a lot of the time I do it uh, behind a podium, but I think that more that's more of like a, a defensive shield. I think that's like 300. That's like, okay, the accountants down the back don't like this, but three quarters of my body is in front of this lectern, so it's fine. Um, well, I years ago... I, I, I mean, many years ago, I had a friend who was a theatre director and um, kind of lost touch since. But she said to me once, I said, have you any tips for doing stand up? She goes, stand ups don't learn necessarily. And I think this is the same for public speakers to if you're doing a dialogue, for example, and the two characters in the dialogue that you're a stand up uh, are talking to each other. Some we tend to be at 90 degrees to the audience, if you know what I mean. So they can only see half your face. She goes. In theatre, we would just have three quarters of the face out to the audience for one side and three quarters of the face out for the other side. So just be aware of what the audience can see, she said to me. And it's weird because stand-up is kind of like a... There's no sort of false course. There's no sort of apprenticeship. You just get on stage and you just keep doing it. So nobody necessarily gives you those kind of staging tips, but that was one I found very useful. Make sure that the audience can see what you're doing. 
So Neil, as you said yourself, there's no false course for stand-up comedy, um, more is a pity, but was there anybody in your earlier days that you looked to, any of the greats that you admired, that you would, you know, uh, study their mannerisms or their, their stage presence? There's nobody that I kind of actively sat down and studied, but you do kind of pick up things by osmosis and um, you find yourself, you know what's weird now is you find yourself writing a joke and then hearing it in somebody else's voice, if you know what I mean. So if I think of a really off-the-wall, slightly surreal joke, I sometimes I hear it in Kevin McAleer's voice, because I think he's amazing, and that's his style of comedy. But when I was sitting, when I was sitting beside kind of Dara Breen for a few years, what I noticed about Dara, for example, is Dara mimes a huge amount of stuff. He actually is a very good physical comic, and, and Colin Murphy is a very, very good physical comic. And then, particularly in your early days, where you don't necessarily find your style you know because it's very experimental at the start you do find yourself then learning from them and acting out a story and it's just another way of communication you know and i think again if somebody's doing a presentation to people you know most of our communication is non-verbal so do act it out you know do do the movements do the voices if you're good at that sort of thing and um, you pick up different things from different people you know you get that really deadpan thing from kevin bridges um, a friend of mine once said about Tommy Tiernan, he said Tommy Tiernan was such a natural natural comic that he thought that it didn't really matter if there was an audience there. You got the impression that Tommy had these things to say and he would be saying them whether you were in front of him or not. So I think that was a very interesting thing to say about him. I think the more I go doing stand-up, there's lots of people who are really good. There's lots of people who are okay. There's lots of people who are who can do the job. But I think what really connects with people, uh, and it comes down to this after 15 or 20 years doing this, it's... The people who are really good and the people who audiences like are authentic. They are exactly what they should be. And they don't pretend to be anything else. And it doesn't matter what they are. So Mickey Flanagan is Mickey Flanagan. But Michael Michael McIntyre and Jack Whitehall are posh boys. And they don't say anything. They don't do anything else. Because if an audience doesn't believe you, and that this goes for any audience, they just won't buy in. Why should they buy in? If you're lying to them and they can tell you're lying to them, why would they buy in? So no matter what you're doing, just tell the truth. It doesn't matter what the truth is, but just tell the truth. And that was actually, that's that's such good advice. That was the first advice I ever had when I started in radio. Just don't pretend to be something you're not because you can't maintain it first and foremost, but the audience won't buy it secondly, you know, and most importantly. Um, you are also a very seasoned broadcaster. We both presented radio shows in the same station. Um, I always felt that I would rather have 100,000 ears listening than 100 eyes watching. Even a small audience looking back at me would be a lot more daunting than sitting in an empty room talking to myself, essentially. How about you? You've done so much TV. You've done so much radio. Is, do you find that medium easier than stand-up? Stand-up is the first love. So you always used to get asked the question of which would you prefer? And yeah. I like the intimacy of radio. I like the fact that after a few years in particular where you were stuck with the moniker of a comedian that you you could do radio you could just talk to people and make it interesting all you had to do when we did the show all we wanted to do was make it compelling it didn't have to be funny all the time so i i enjoyed that i enjoyed the 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 fact that you could kind of spread your wings a little bit and take 10 or 15 minutes with someone and not have to be thinking about god i have to make this funny very soon there's nothing that meets the immediacy the immediate feedback of people in a room laughing 
or not laughing, but 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 going for it, you know. There's nothing like that. And any of the TV shows that I've done, the ones I've enjoyed most are not the ones necessarily that are documentaries. They're very interesting, but they're ones with live audiences in them because it's the closest thing that you get to a gig, I suppose, really. It's not the wrong answer given that I'm not allowed to do this for the next six months. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes wow. with stand-up, and I talk about stand-up now, I feel like, you know those lads used to dig the canals? So you dig a canal and you look up and, a, and the train just goes by and you go, okay, maybe, am I in the wrong, am I in the Betamax side of history here? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? So, But it is the first look for the moment. Um, but you miss the audience of course you do you know let's talk about the darker side of the audience then and it's the dread of any public speaker but particularly a comedian I would imagine that is the mouthy spectator the heckler like how do you manage them well the first thing is to realize that you have an advantage in that um, you have a microphone so so, sometimes depending on where they are and sometimes this is the hardest type of heckle to deal with when you're inexperienced is someone heckling you that no one else can hear so sometimes that happens so somebody in the front row kind of whispering something or something what you have to do there is ignore them so say you're doing a big presentation to a lot of people somebody's heckling you but if nobody else can hear them you don't have to deal with it it's fine so ignore them if you um in in a rowdy comedy club be aware of the context of the heckle so irish people sometimes heckle and it's not necessarily destructive so it's it's kind of it's adding to the gig and you don't have to be defensive with it. You can kind of roll with it. So that's the second thing. Third thing is probably realize whose side the audience are on at that point of the gig. So if you've been absolutely ripping it up and someone heckles you, you can be a little bit harsher on them than if you weren't doing that well because the audience likes you and wants to hear from you. So you have to be aware of where you are in the space as well. Well, Neil, you've you've drawn wonderful parallels between the art of stand-up comedy and public speaking. But the one thing you've mentioned consistently is the need for practice. So you have to practice. Yes, absolutely. You know, barristers practice their, their summation, you know, and comedians practice their their uh, monologues. So practice. It's It's about respect for the audience, really know what you're going to say and then deliver properly. Well, Neil, thank you so much. You've, you've given such incredible insights and advice into how to present publicly. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you back up on the stage, hopefully very soon. In fact, you're going to be on the stage at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary on September the 26th. And you can get your tickets for that at paviliontheatre.ie. Thank you so much, Neil. And thanks to you for listening. We're going to be back with another how-to very soon.